0: you're listening to the Hub City Church podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Good morning. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for coming today. I am glad that all of you are here, but I am most glad that's our new baby. It's is here. Uh, not my. Not not our new baby. Uh, just someone from our community group. Uh, the stairs welcome Thomas to the world. A week and a few days old. Um, very excited. Congratulations, guys. You look uh, you look like you fit the part. So I'm glad you're here. Uh, my name's Gabe. I'm one of the elders here, um, and uh, we're going through the visit of the Magi today. Uh, just as as Matt mentioned last week. It's kind of refreshing to be going through a Christmas story outside of the Christmas season. Um, Maybe we're less influenced by the season itself, uh, the songs especially. I learned, uh, even in prepping today's sermon, uh, that a lot of details stand out to me that maybe are otherwise influenced uh, just by songs and things. For example, We Three Kings is a bit misleading. It's a catchy tune, uh, but there's no mention... Of specifically how many kings attended Christ's birth. We get that notion from the three gifts uh, of the gold, frankincense, and myrrh that were brought, but it could have been more. Uh, actually, Eastern Syriac tradition, uh, Christian um, tradition, holds that there were 12 wise men, uh, and it wasn't until the year about 500 um, when a manuscript was composed that attributed three named kings from the time of Christ uh, it, close to the, the region of where they assume the, the kings came from uh, that were from that same era. Um, and so even further study maybe even tells us they, they weren't kings at all. Actually, a more full definition of what is in some of our translations of wise men uh, that will read um, as another name uh, for magi. Uh, and it can be interpreted that even can be interpreted in a myriad of ways. Some scholars think it was more likely that they were astrologers um, or even sorcerers. I think uh, we twelve sorcerers just probably didn't sound right to the songwriter. Um, so uh, maybe there was three, and Matthew didn't note their number, so I don't think it's of uh, great detail to the story, but it does show how easily our theology might be influenced uh, by outside sources. All that said, I want to look into some of the details of this story today as we continue to step into the early life of Christ through the Gospel of Matthew. The birth of Jesus has always been surrounded by a lot of mystery. Matt taught on the Immaculate Conception and how Jesus was not a demigod. He was not the half-breed of God and human, but was fully God and fully man, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Science can't really prove that. There's a mystery in the star that led the wise men, mystery in the dreams that the various characters had. It feels like in in Western church history, especially in the last 150 years or so, we've steered away from mysticism and mystery, trying to explain away the unexplainable. But both the birth and obviously the resurrection of Christ really do have some unexplainable circumstances. This is where belief comes in. And belief is faith and understanding and trust. These mysteries, uh, as with many throughout the Bible, uh, can be divisive to us. You may have heard a a quote from uh, C.S. Lewis before, this, this one before, where he says, "...a man who was merely a man... And said the sort of things Jesus said, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. And C.S. Lewis here, of course, is talking about Jesus being more than just a man, more than just human. And I'd add that that applies to the miracle of Jesus' conception and birth, and to the star and to the wise men. Either it's a ridiculous story or each detail is of great importance and forces us to have a reaction of faith to believe and anticipate and discover or to oppose and deny. I believe that when we take a closer look into the mystique of these wise guys, uh, we'll see the important role that they played in the story of Christ. Let me pray and then we'll jump in here. Father, we do come to you this morning wanting to uh, hear from you. I ask that the words this morning be your words, Um, help us to learn from the story that does have some mystery behind it, Uh, but you are a God who is above our understanding at times, and we just want to trust in you. So uh, speak to us this morning through this story in your name, amen. All of Scripture is steeped in cross-references, but as we go through the book of Matthew, one of the important goals to see is something that scholars call gospel harmony. This is simply seeing a correlating facts from each gospel uh, to understand the different perspectives that are in each of the four gospels that we have uh, while still providing evidence of truth in a common story amongst them all. Uh, But these 12 verses that cover the story of Matthew, excuse me, the story of the Magi uh, and the wise men in Matthew um, are just there. There's actually no record of uh, Christ's birth in the Gospel of Mark. Luke doesn't go into um, any details about the wise men or Herod's opposition that I'll also talk about later this morning. Uh, and John says very little about Christ's birth. So, to study some of the details of the wise men's story, I want to look more into other cross references in Scripture, uh, different prophecies that are throughout uh, Scripture that we're, of course, familiar with around Christmas time, um, and a couple word studies as well, just to better understand this scene. We're first and only confronted with these wise men in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, and so starting in verse 1, which says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. First, just looking at the name Magi, that word, wise men, uh, it appears elsewhere uh, in, in Scripture. Jeremiah 39 uh, calls someone the chief of Magi. Uh, and that title uh, appears outside of Scripture as well. Uh, there's historians, uh, specifically Herodotus, who lived about 400 years before Christ, uh, said that they were um, priests in Medes that were astronomers and interpreters of dreams. Plato even described magi as observers of the heaven and heavens and philosophers. Uh, and others have called them sorcerers, not in the same way that we understand uh, that word today, Uh, It would have been not something associated with the dark arts or witchcraft, uh, but would have been more something like a mix of all the titles I just read, spiritual philosophers, uh, royal counselors, and astronomers, rather than soothsayers. We can surmise that these men uh, were highly educated and influential due to their prestige and wealth and knowledge. They probably would have come with a whole entourage of attendants People to pack tents and all the gifts and the food for the journey. Additionally, the specific place in the east where they come from, while the detail maybe is irrelevant, it most likely was Arabia and Babylon, uh, which is where the gifts of frankincense and myrrh and gold were in abundance. The importance of their visit has long been the speculation of a lot of scholars, but one thing is certain, and interesting: these. Wise men were not Jews. Imagine what Herod's perspective might have been, the self-appointed king of the Jews who heard whispers of a prophesied king coming, followed by mysterious wise men coming from far away who appeared in his kingdom. These weren't people from Herod's community that he could have suspected foul play from or or, uh, mysticism from. Uh, These weren't religious leaders that, in his community at least, that um, could have interpreted the signs of Jesus coming themselves. Uh, the ones that were in his life, the, the Pharisees were probably so focused on their own religiosity, uh, they, they weren't looking for the coming king. Uh, but they were, these magi were, were not Jews. They were people from a distant land, and they weren't coming just to inquire about this new king. They were coming to worship him. This uh, first is what is that Herod appears uh, to be. It seems that Herod appears to be caught off guard here, uh, and we'll see in a minute he's troubled by this news when the wise men come. The second thing that I'd like to point out uh, is that uh, Jesus, who was fulfilling a long prophesied role of King of the Jews, was sought after by people who weren't Jews, they were Gentiles. Among the first worshipers of the king of the Jews weren't actually Jews. One of the main reasons I think that this is so important is that the Magi here are fulfilling prophecies. They acknowledge that Christ is king, and just by by their uh, nationality, they're, they're acknowledging that he's king of all nations. Somehow through interpreting the stars and putting historical records together, perhaps reading prophecies from the Torah and elsewhere, these wise men came to understand that the king of the Jews was going to be born in the land of Judah at a particular time and a particular place. And so they traveled far, field and fountain, moor and mountain. Marilla wanted me to nix that one, but I had to stick it in there. At least I didn't say the oh part because then we would all start it and maybe. Um, So if we can pause there uh, just for a minute and think about what that would have meant. Most of us in this room are the grateful recipients of salvation from Christ to all nations, right? But we've heard the whole story. We know the end. These magi came to worship a baby before they knew of his ministry. Uh, They knew not that he was going to die for them or that he was going to rise again. They were worshiping Jesus simply for who he was and not for what he did for them. In verse 2 we read that the wise men came to Jerusalem saying, "Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For when we saw his star, uh, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him." Note that they didn't claim Christ as their own king. However, if the coming of any king that had been prophesied for hundreds of years prior came to fruition, it'd prove many things. Namely, it would verify that prophecy, and other related events would be presumed likely to happen as well. And we know that there's a lot of prophecies that talk about the role of Messiah, uh, so it meant something big. Isaiah 9 is one of those prophecies where uh, it foretold that a child would be born, sovereign and from a holy lineage, which is the one that Matt went through a couple weeks ago. And Isaiah 11 tells us of the remnant of the stump of Jesse, a king whose reign will be unmatched in righteousness and wisdom and understanding, who ultimately will bring complete peace to mankind. So to the Magi, even if Jesus wasn't their king by nationality, these fulfilled prophecies would have been a turning point in their lives, and thus they sought him to worship him. They go on to say, For we saw his star when it rose and came to worship him. We know, they were saying, you know, we we know when he's coming, and we know that the time is near. Can you point us in the right direction? A quick note on the star... Um, it's also a prophecy, and uh, we see that in numbers twenty four uh, which says that out of Jacob, a star will rise out of Israel. I don't think we're meant to get lost in explaining the science of how this might have happened. There's a lot of a lot of speculation as to whether it was this planet's lining or different things, um, but none of those necessarily stand up with uh, any sustenance. Uh, but it does stand that whether God used a natural phenomenon or purely his own supernatural ability to make something appear that was not there before, his point was to lead the foreign worshipers to Christ. Just barely two chapters into Matthew's record, and we're already pointed out, it already points out that Christ is for all nations, not just for Israel. Matthew ties this together at the end of his gospel in in chapter 24, verse 14, where he says, the gospel for the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Even the apostle John writes that, uh, quoting Jesus, where he says, salvation is from the Jews, and the hour is coming, and is here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. He's seeking the heart of worship, not a religious practice confined to a particular race or nationality, but a true worshiper. I think that the Magi are an early representation of what a true worshiper is. Matthew here is portraying Jesus as the Messiah to all. And so far in this scene, we've been introduced to Herod and the wise men, but now, uh, in verses 3 and 4, we're introduced to uh, the others that Herod assembles, which was the chief priests and scribes. Uh, he assembled them to inquire where this king would be born. I think he was scrambling a little bit. We read that he was troubled, along with all of Jerusalem. And there's a little word there, when reading it aloud, that maybe we, we look over, but I think it would have been a poke at Herod's ego. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews. Herod was not born into any notable lineage of kingship, as if to look past Herod's shoulder saying, so where's this king? Not recognizing him as king, obviously. Uh, Where is the king that has been born of the Jews? The wise men and any people traveling with them certainly wouldn't have gone unnoticed in Jerusalem, And so as news spread that these magi were seeking the king of the Jews, it caused a bit of fear. The word used here um, for Herod being troubled, according to Strong's Concordance and some other uh, resources, literally means to be agitated to the point of shaking or stirred up in inner perplexion. We can assume that Herod was fearful for a number of reasons, namely, he could lose his role as king if someone who was actually worthy of that position came and challenged him. These foreign noble astrologers were a confirmation of this for him, especially having been led there in such strange circumstances by a star and the interpretation of signs. Through historical record, we know that Herod was not particularly a wise guy, uh, nor was he nice. through the help of Rome, he violently fought his way and bought his way into his position as king. And so we can see why all of Jerusalem would also be troubled in that verse. If Herod was a highly reactive leader, it was not probably going to be a good thing if he was challenged. What would Herod do to make sure he could keep his authority? A new king represented upheaval, which caused fear and concern to the people of the city." So here we are, just potentially within the first couple years of Christ's birth, and already Jesus has opposition. I don't think opposition is necessarily Matthew's main point in these 12 verses, but it does stand out to me. We're very familiar with the opposition that Christ experienced throughout the rest of his life, especially in his ministry, of course, with his crucifixion and the condemnation from the Jewish leaders, uh, but here, just the fulfillment of a prophecy was a threat to someone's ego and his role in, uh, as king. Really, there's two types of opposition we can see here. Herod was troubled that his kingship would become obsolete, and the people of Jerusalem who feared the disruption uh, of that the Messiah could bring to their lives. The second type of op- opposition we see here Uh, is seen by the scribes and the chief priests who quickly responded to Herod's hasty request and nervous request by scrolling, in the old-fashioned way, of course, uh, to Micah uh, 5.2, where they read the prophecy to Herod and said, You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And that's kind of all they did. (laughs) They just read this verse. They had confirmation from a foreign king, excuse me, from foreign influence, uh, the magi, that this prophecy was happening in their midst. And they knew where it was likely to happen, but they didn't do anything about it. They went along their day seemingly unaffected by this news, and so nonchalant as to be like, oh, yeah, the king that we've been long expecting for a few hundred years, yeah, he's He's just over in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, by the way, is just six miles away from Jerusalem where all this was happening, and they didn't even follow, at least to our record, the Magi to inquire for themselves what was happening just a few miles away. And whether it was disbelief or simply non-action, they didn't seem to care. Seeing the reaction of Herod and the people of Jerusalem and the non-action of and the apathy of the chief priests, Leads me to wonder how we might react in that situation. If this all happened today and the long expected and long prophesied Messiah and King was potentially coming right now and was just a few miles away, would we be fearful that our lives might be messed up and disrupted? Would we be concerned and troubled feeling threatened by someone who may be more important than us? Or perhaps, like these chief priests and scribes, Excuse me. <clears throat> or perhaps, like these chief priests and scribes, would we know enough but not care, which is apathy? I've got news for you that is the case. Jesus is here now, today. Although we're awaiting his ultimate return, we are presently faced with the reality that he is active in our lives. So, what's our reaction to that re- reality? Is it opposition or worship? Do you have a kingdom that's threatened by Jesus? Many people's reaction to that disruption was ultimately to quiet and crucify the threat rather than to surrender and worship the king. It wasn't the Jewish leaders who flocked to worship Jesus, but again, these Gentile foreigners, these magi, who we'll read in just a few verses, fell to their face to worship this baby. Inherently, Jesus is disruptive. Paul, later in 1 Corinthians and elsewhere, calls the Messiah a stumbling block. He wasn't the military king that the Jews had misinterpreted would be coming, but he was actually coming to disrupt mankind's egos and false religions. Of course, he's worthy of worship, and we in this room choose to devote our lives to him, but does his actual presence in this moment Does that cause us to worship him, or does it frustrate us that he's disrupting our lives? As a baby, he wasn't flipping tables in the temple. He wasn't preaching words of conviction and false religion. He was innocently laying in a manger, and even that was disruptive. The king of the world came completely vulnerable and innocent, but the implications of that long-expected Messiah made Herod and all of Jerusalem troubled, at the disruption they anticipated it would cause. In a sermon that uh, covered the same verses uh, that I listened to, John Piper said that Jesus is troubling to people who do not want to worship him and brings out opposition for those who do. This wasn't a conviction that I was anticipating from this scene or one that I had really considered in the normal joy of the Christmas season. Herod was in opposition because of the threat to his role that Jesus represented. Jerusalem was in opposition because of the disruption to their current life that Jesus represented. The scribes and Pharisees were in opposition because Jesus wasn't a Messiah to them. These were the same people that later deny that they have any king but Caesar and beg for Rome to crucify him, to crucify Jesus. Again, in the words of the Apostle Paul, he was their stumbling block and offense. They were first apathetic and later in his life offended in the manner in which this Messiah presented himself. How dare Jesus claim to be Messiah? A baby born in a small, dusty village? He wasn't a kingly figure. They were expecting a royal military king to ride in and save them from Rome, not the humble king, Who offered salvation for their sins? What are you expecting from Jesus? Leaning back into the text uh, in verse 7 and 8, Herod uh, had a private meeting with the Magi that we read about to inquire how long the star had appeared to them, which they said had been about two years. And when he asked them to go find the king and return with the knowledge of his whereabouts, that he could also worship him, uh, we know that that was a lie. He's so worried about his role and self-image, so self-protective. Every detail to him, though, was power. It was the power of information that could likely be advantageous to him later on. Now, finally, here comes the Christmas joy that we're all a little more familiar with. It says that the Magi left and went on their way after this private meeting, as Matthew writes. And as they were on their way, there it was, the star, the mysterious star, again guiding them, a light leading them to Bethlehem, right where Jesus was, right where the chief priest said that the Messiah would be. And so definitive was the star's direction and resting place that the Magi, we see, rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I love uh, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase on this verse. He says, The star led them on until it hovered over the place of the child. They could hardly contain themselves. They were in the right place. They arrived at the right time. Upon entering the house and seeing Jesus as a baby, they were so moved and so aware of his holiness and position that despite the less than royal surroundings, they fell on their face and worshipped him. Even if they weren't praising him as divine, which... uh, That's a a point of speculation. Uh, They were undoubtedly worshiping him as king, showing full respect and recognition of his role. Imagine that experience. Imagine receiving a a, a treasure map in a dream, and when you wake up, you're so convinced that at the end of the dotted line, you're going to find a treasure. And as you get closer and closer, it becomes evident that you're really almost there. You're expecting something, and it's finally about to be there. At the end of the the X on the map, uh, only these men found the treasure, the newborn king of the Jews, the Messiah of the world. It's a fascinating thing to think about what that experience would have been like. They gave Jesus the gifts they brought, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And simply put, uh, they were just traditional gifts uh, for paying homage uh, to a ruler uh, and someone of great distinction. I think there's a lot of uh, text that that tries to look into those gifts and what they represent, which I don't think is necessarily invalid, but also um, these gifts were commonly given to royalty, someone of, of distinction. Um, but it does tell of their rec- recognition of Jesus' royalty, right? They're actually a beautiful-smelling incense, and if anyone's interested... I've got some frankincense and myrrh here. I did not bring my gold, unfortunately, but um, if anyone's interested after the service just to look at it and smell it, uh, it would normally be burned as a sweet-smelling incense. Probably would have made the uh, manger smell a little bit better as well. Um, so these, these gifts were, of course, of high value, which served Jesus in his early years at least. Uh, speaking from experience, diapers aren't cheap, and so in all likelihood it aided their trip Um, Honestly, to Egypt, which uh, Matt will go over next week. Finally, the Magi were warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, but quietly escape another way. And they did just that. In all of this, a small but significant mention is that Jesus spoke to these Gentiles in a dream. They weren't, uh, excuse me, they were compelled to listen, not giving in to Herod's wish. For their own protection, obviously for the protection of Christ as well, God showed them that Herod's intentions were not to worship, but were self-motivated and hostile. Next week, Matt's going to carry on and take us through Herod's reaction to the Magi giving Herod the slip, uh, but there are two closing thoughts that I'd like to start to wrap up here with. The first is for us to consider our reaction to the news of our present king, Jesus? Do we see the same type of opposition to Jesus today as we read about in this story? Fear from the threat that Jesus is to man's human uh, to humans' own power and ego. I know people who won't commit to following Jesus because they know it will demand more of their life than they're willing to commit. Maybe it's something that we're not willing to give up. Or indifference, opposition by non-action. By Jesus being a nobody in some people's lives, which is obviously something that exists in Christianity, perhaps we should approach Jesus with more reverence and awe than we currently do. The second thing to consider is to be expectant of our coming King with exceedingly great joy as the Magi were. While he's present with us, we do await his return. In uh, 1 John 3, verse 2, we're told uh, that we know that when Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That begs a joyful expectation and readiness in our souls.